The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop your daily Facebook hijacking session and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 498 with guest Stephen Forte, recorded live Tuesday, October 20th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says... Any sufficiently advanced bug is indistinguishable from a feature. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here in Las Vegas. Here we are. We're at Dev Connections, uh, doing our thing. I'm sure you'll hear it very soon on an upcoming show. Hey, Richard. Sir. So, a little history lesson for you. 1964. John Kemeny and Thomas Kurtz create BASIC, an unstructured programming language for non-computer scientists. Right. 1965. Kemeny and Kurtz go to 1964. <laughs> <laughs> huh? That's a shame. That's a shame. Yeah, there you go. We should stick to podcast. Okay, let's do that. Hey, you know, but speaking of that, I, I got a frantic call from my mother yesterday. Mm-hmm. She just got a new computer, and it's, I installed a program that uninstalls all the crippleware that comes with it. Oh, yeah? Know? So she's running it. She calls me up all freaked out saying a dialog box came up that said, money has been successfully removed from your computer. <laughs> I'm like, no, Mom, that's okay. Yeah. It's a, Microsoft money, maybe? It's Microsoft money. There you go. All right, let's get into Better Know Framework. <laughs> Well, Richard, as you know, .NET 4 is nascent. It's yes. on the horizon here. We're going to be hearing a lot about it very soon. So I thought I'd start doing some .NET 4 classes for you. I'm excited. Probably the most exciting class I've heard of is Lazy of T. Huh. So you know what lazy loading is, right? Yeah, yeah. When, when you don't load stuff the moment it's called, you do it when you need it. Exactly. Sort of on-demand loading of data. Okay. 
Well, you can take any class and pass it in here. And then you can, uh, there's a function that you essentially think of it like a constructor or anonymous method. There's a function do. Okay. Where you do whatever it is you're initializing and then return a value of whatever the type T you passed in is. Okay. Okay. And here's the cool thing. That, that little do method doesn't get called until somebody requests the value of the object or does a two string. So actually, you know, makes a reference to it in some way. Well, not just makes a reference to the object, but actually calls the value. Right. So, for example, you've got a, um, a, a string. You know, you pass in a string. You say, my variable is a new lazy of, and you pass in string. Okay. So then right there on the constructor, you have an anonymous method that returns a string that does initialization and returns some value. All right. But that code won't run. That code doesn't run okay. until somebody requests the value of your lazy object which the type of which is the the ver the the type t that you passed in. So in this case it's a string. But it could be a customer object. Right. Something so, that would be quite expensive. We go off and do a fetch to a database or anything like that. That's right. So the idea being that inside your function if you never get around to calling that, you don't pay the price to populate. Exactly. And it's something that we could have done with a pattern easily, you know, fairly easily, but it's just one of those really nice elegant things that's now right in the framework and we can start using it. And it we makes all know it simple what it to is. do it. Yeah. That's very cool. System.lazyofT. Nice. So uh, do we have any email today? I do indeed. And it's actually a comment on Better Know a Framework. Let me oh, read cool. this to you. Hi, guys. First, got to say, I absolutely love your show. I'm a regular, long-time listener and probably a first-time writer. Probably. Just had a small comment on the Better Know a Framework for this last show. That was 487. You were mentioning the system.threading.interlocked class. Oh, right. It's an incredibly useful class, but not only for integers. That's right. Interlock.exchange and interlock.compareExchange are incredibly useful methods for dealing with any reference type. They let you swap references to an object in an atomic operation without locking in multi-threaded scenarios. Technically, this works since a reference to an object is internally just an integer, a pointer, so the operating interlock exchange method still works, but in terms of use, it's a commonly used on non-integer types. Hmm. So thanks. Good point. And as I said, I love the show. And that's from Reed Copsey. Reed, thanks for the great uh, thought around uh, that particular set of classes. We've got uh, so much to talk about here. It's crazy. And hopefully in the future, we won't be doing so much locking because that really is the bane of programmer's existence and it doesn't matter how awesome a programmer you are even someone like kate gregory still says after a while i just say you know what that's close enough yeah <laughs> let's just and then hope happens and the yeah. code continues to run exactly and we're gonna send reed a mug for his great email and if you've got questions concerns ideas for shows criticisms or insight into anything we've talked about on the show please send us an email dot net rocks at franklins.net and now let's roll a show oh wait a minute we have something else to do. What's that? We have to talk about what's going on at the PDC. Oh, yes. It's almost PDC time. And uh, we're going to be... What are we doing at the PDC? We're doing so many things there. But the main one we want to talk about is my.netstory.com. Yeah. So this is a competition for folks who are building .NET apps, and you know who you are. Mm -hmm. Microsoft wants to showcase good old-fashioned applications that are out there in the wild. So go to my.netstory.com and take a look. 
the beginning of the competition starts at PDC. It goes on from there. Right. So we've got a few folks we're going to talk to while we're there, and they'll become shows because I can't get enough of talking to people about their applications. Yep. And uh, the contest goes on through to the end of the year, and you, my friend Carl Franklin, are one of the judges I to pick the am. winning app. I am one of the judges, and also another POAP alumnus, uh, Scott Hanselman. Oh, yes, of course. He's also a judge. The Hansel Miniter himself. Yeah, so we're we're well representing the community there. And, and, you know, all we really have to do is know a good app when we see it. And it shouldn't be that tough. Yeah, it shouldn't so be that tough. they're looking for competitors. And if you're interested, go to my.netstory.com. So now let's roll the show that we recorded live in front of a kind of a small audience in uh, Arnhem, the Netherlands, at the SDN conference a couple of weeks ago with Stephen Forte. Hey, Netherlands! Welcome to .NET Rocks! There must be 50,000 people in this room. This is the biggest room we've ever been in. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, they're they're still excited in the other room, too. Yeah. yeah, please keep it down. We're trying to do a show here, a respectable show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're here with Stephen Forte in uh, in Arnhem. Hi. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. We just can't seem to get rid of you. I know. We, I'm a plague. Been, yeah, we've been with you through Bulgaria, through Poland, and now uh, Amsterdam. And we're here, as we usually are every year, at SDC. Mm-hmm. It's been uh, – how many shows have you done now, Steve? This is my 14th SDC event. I have to admit, I just like Dutch women. Uh, we've, we've come to appreciate that since uh, most of the Dutch women now have filed harassment claims against you inside this building. Correct. Yeah. There was at least one waitress yesterday who served you once and then was not seen in the area again. Correct. Yes, they scuttled her out. So uh, usually on this show, we like to talk about uh, you know topics about development, about .NET, about um, technologies and things that uh, are coming down the pike from Microsoft. That's not going to be this show. That's cool. Yeah. So this show, I thought I would start by uh, we, we're sort of framing this as current technologies of you know and realities of living in the digital world in 2009, the end of 2009, and talking about some of the things, the toys that we have, and and maybe some of the development tools and just some of the trends that are going on. For example, in July, uh, I found, I read this story, and you probably heard it too, about a bunch of people who woke up one day and some books they had purchased from Amazon on their Kindle had mysteriously disappeared. And among them was, and this is great, folks, George Orwell's 1984. <laughs> so one day you're reading about Big Brother. And the next day Big Brother reaches into your Kindle and takes it away from you. And in this case, Big Brother is playing the role of Big Brother would be Jeff Bezos. Yes, Amazon.com. So I thought about that. And, you know, of course, it's an interesting problem because they may, I guess they didn't have the right to sell it or there was some copyright dispute or something like that. And Amazon had to agree to remove it. But it seems like a blatant violation of the line that's like me and my stuff and the internet, you know, and the internet just sort of reached, not the internet, but somebody over the internet just sort of went behind that border and, you know, the next, I mean, of course, they credited the people for their, you know, their account for the books, but still, uh, this is the kind of thing that happens in the digital world. 
Well, I, I actually don't have a problem with this. I own a Kindle. And I actually can't live without the Kindle. My my permanent address is is um, seat 19C. Uh, I, I travel so much, and I watch people carry books onto airplanes and stuff them in their bags. And I have my Kindle, and I and I use it all the time. And I I now live in Hong Kong. I recently moved from New York to Hong Kong, and I can read my New York Times and Wall Street Journal and Business Week, the American editions, right on the Kindle, right from Hong Kong. So I find it an indispensable tool. The fact that Amazon can reach into your Kindle and remove a piece of content that it was not authorized to sell you is actually not a big deal. I understand why people freaked out because the theory could be if Amazon unilaterally decided to censor material and say, ooh, we don't think you should read something like, ooh, the Da Vinci Code and took that off your Kindle, then we would have a problem. But there's other now, e-readers. There was still a violation, I think, of expected behavior here. Amazon should have warned us in advance, by the way, by this date, this book will disappear because we don't have a license for it. Really sorry about that. You'll get a credit. The problem is that they didn't tell anybody. They didn't even tell anybody after they'd done it. It was after people started freaking out that 1984 disappeared that they started putting the bits together. I think Amazon just mishandled it. And I think my best proof is, I'll bet anything, they never do that that way again. I, I tend to agree. I, I once again say I don't think there was a problem removing the book. They had to by law. Yeah. It just was, hmm, maybe send everyone an email that says, oh, by tonight at midnight, this book will disappear off your device. I think maybe the reason why they didn't do it is because people could leave their device off. So e-readers, who's got one and clap? Don't show your hands. This is a radio show. Clap if you have an e-reader. Come on. One of the e-readers is built one, by two, a three, Dutch four. company. All right, so next year is uh, promised to be the year of the e-reader, and it's not just Amazon. Sony has had Sony actually had a, one first. Right? Yeah, I've had a Sony e-book, the original one, now for five, five years, and it's like wearing out. It's so old. Of course, Microsoft is getting the Courier out. Have you heard of Microsoft's Courier? It's a two uh, screen, two about seven inch screens in a book format that has both pen, stylus, and multi touch capability. So it can be a little complex compared to some of these other ones, but but it's more like combining a, an e reader and a notebook and a tablet and and a, a sort of a super iPhone, uh, if you will. Although we don't really know if it's real yet, right? I mean, the, the images we've seen so far, the video and stuff, is I think largely simulation. Well, and Gadget says that they had one and that they've seen it, and Microsoft has been showing it to certain certain parties. And I have a problem with that type of design. An e reader is not meant to be a convergence device where oh, I want to listen to music on my e reader, I want to browse the internet on my e reader. The only thing you want to do in your e-reader is read books. Do one thing and do it right. It's funny. My, my Sony, that original one I got, it had an MP3 player or it has an MP3 player, which I have never used, right? Never plugged in because uh, I wear out that battery on a given trip reading books. I've had the same problem with, even with like an iPhone. Nobody seems to be able to get through the day with an iPhone as it is. Why would you listen to music to it too? It barely works as a phone. I, I got yeah. I have my Kindle here. I pulled it out, and uh, what's interesting about these e-readers is they use digital ink, and the idea is that it's reflective. It's not uh, doesn't have light that shows through it, so you can read it in sunlight, and it only uses power when it switches from page to page. 
So uh, now try explaining that to the flight attendant yes. when they tell me to turn it off for takeoff and, and landing. And you say it I'm is like, off. I go, it is off because I'm I won't turn the page during takeoff and landing. I right. promise. They don't. And then you try to explain how there's a black ball and a white ball, and, <laughs> and I yeah. start explaining the physics behind it. How when you you draw the ink, moving the balls to the page is how you actually use power. And she just says, "Turn it off, sir." Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> This, uh, but this, it's always on. That's the, the thing. The Amazon uh, e-reader, the Kindle 2, is one I have. And this has a exper- – if you go to the main menu, there's an experimental link. And if you go there, one of the things is a simple web browser. Now, you do not pay broadband charges, but this does indeed have a 3G cell phone uh, in it for the purpose of communicating um, with Amazon.com through regular use of the Kindle. But it actually has a little web browser in it. So it's essentially a little free web browser. Now, does it, it look like a web page when you go there? Mm, no. No, it really doesn't. It's, so it's really good for reading text. But I find, uh, you know, if you can hold this for a second, I have a screen on my desk, on my laptop here. Just look at this and look at all the goo that surrounds the text. You know, this is an article from, what is it, PC World? And there's so much goo that surrounds the text that if you tried to read this in a linear fashion on a small device, you know, you'd have to go to page five before you, you know, when you switch from link to link, you'd have to go through five pages of goo and ads and stuff and menus to get to the actual content. So it's not really, it's not really a free web browser as some people have. I mean, it's good for if you're reading a book and I read a lot of nonfiction and they might make a historical reference and you might want to go to Wikipedia and look something quick up. That's exactly what it's Well, was this the original Kindle had Wikipedia built into it, right? It was part of the 3G thing. I think they took it out in the Kindle too because people use it so much. Because once you combine Wikipedia with a transparent 3G network and a handheld device, dude, that is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. (laughs) Like you've created it right there. 42. And I think it was a little too cool. So they've actually backed off on that now. Well, and if you think about it, the reason they can give you that 3G modem in there, whatever it is, for free is because you're buying books with that thing. And it's yeah. pr- primarily what it's used for. Yeah, I got to presume that the – I think it's Sprint that provides the Sprint. network for it. Sprint's making their money by taking a cut of the sales of the books or magazines or whatever you buy through it. Now, do you know that for sure? Or this is just I don't know. It's pure supposition on my part. But I'm a pretty good supposer. Yeah. Well, I, I was looking online to, to see about the, the new e-readers that are coming out. Asus has one called the Asus E, E-E-E Reader. Uh, that also has dual hinged screens, which I don't think falls in that, like Stephen said, falls in the category. But a company called Plastic Logic is doing one that's going to have an AT&T 3G network modem in it. That's coming next year. Uh, another one called another company or this uh, product called Cool Readers. Um, they're like 249 and they come in different colors. That's like 50 euro. Yeah. There's the, the new Sony's got a whole new range of, uh, e-readers coming and AT&T is going to have wireless in the new Sony e-reader so good yeah the, this is the hip thing now is put 3G in the reader right so that's how you can load the books because the old Sony reader the only way to load the books was via USB and their custom software right and and also now I've I've had to turn the wireless off on this but I subscribe to the New York Times and the Independent and the Economist which I try to read as much as I can but it's great because you just turn it on in the morning and it's right there you know, you don't have to go download anything. It just comes to you when you turn it on. It's also great being in the uh, hotel, not in the hotel, in the airport, in yeah. the bookstore and thumbing through a book and it's twenty nine ninety nine. And then you go, oh, I'll just buy this right now on Amazon yeah, exactly. for 10 bucks. 
Well, that's the typical retail problem of the internet, right? Everybody goes to the retail store to look at the physical device, and they order it from Amazon, right? That's the curse of uh, retail in the internet age. But what I was going to say is that I'm really, really surprised at how long the battery lasts when you don't have the wireless. Lasts for about three weeks for me. Yeah, a long, long, long time. And when you do have it on, maybe a couple hours of my wireless is always turned off because uh, then I live in Hong Kong and the I have the US Kindle and it does not work in Hong Kong so I have to do everything through USB yeah and it, the the battery lasts for three plus weeks well you know we we were talking before a little bit about advertising and uh, how advertising seems to drive digital content in general I mean that's basically well, how it pays you, for it it pays for it yeah uh, this show is no different. You know, uh, Telerik is really the reason that we can afford to be here and afford to do this show twice a week. And, um, you know, we're constantly hearing stories of people who are finding new and innovative ways to skip through the ads. <laughs> and it's just, it's just one of those things. When you go to a website, do you actually see the banner ads? No? And you make a valid point uh, when you just showed the laptop on the PC Week uh, website here where the article is – Less than a quarter of the entire screen. There's a banner that's a third of the screen across the top. There's a thing down the left for navigation. And then there's an ad block as big as the article block beside it. And I find as geeks, we've just learned to shut that off. Like often we can't see stuff on pages anymore because we're so good at blocking it out to try and focus on the content that matters that if someone would make a mistake and actually put useful information in an ad block, you'll never see it. You know, our eyeballs are trained to look like most pages follow that design pattern, right? Right. So my, my eyeball is just trained to look right for that ad and go down. I don't even see the advertising. So what does this mean for companies who are trying to advertise to, to, to web users? Well, I think they need to find more creative ways to engage with their, with their customers and their potential customers. So I actually think, um, you know, at Telerik, we tried things. We do contests and we do things. We're sponsoring actual shows like this. And we just had a, a campaign with Stack Overflow where we have given everyone with a certain reputation level um, free Telerik licenses at Stack Overflow. And the amount of blog posts and Twittering we got from all those folks that were over, I think, 10,000 points on Stack Overflow has been better than a lot of our print advertising or even our um, regular sponsorship of websites. So those are just some creative ways to go in. And you got you to gotta admit, if there's, if there's an, a video ad playing and it's funny and, and you know, it's something that could be viral, yeah, that's get, that gets my attention. Or something that somebody sends me that might be. And I remember there was a, a Burger King did a website called subservientchicken.com. Do you remember that? I do. <laughs> so there's just a, a, a picture of a guy in a chicken outfit in the living room just standing there. And it said, tell the chicken what to do. So you type in jump up and down. And then the chicken jumps up and down. He said, do jumping jacks. And the chicken does jumping jacks. So the idea is they made – set up a video camera and, and you know asked people to tell the chicken what to do. And they got – a whole list of actions that somebody in a web on a web browser might tell this thing to do, and then they just filmed all these video clips of the guy doing it. Now, how and does I that thought, help Burger King? I have no idea how that helps Burger King, but it occupied but my mind for a good half hour. But we're talking I, about it right now. We're talking about it. We're not well, talking. And it's amazing you remember that Burger King had anything to do with it. That's you right. Think there it'd was be KFC, right? There was, I mean, yeah, chicken. there was nothing. And maybe it was a dig at KFC for all I know. But the only thing that I knew it was Burger King was there was a tiny little type down at the bottom. But it does go to show you that that was brilliant. Like you're going to look to see what is this, you know, subservientchicken.com. It's ridiculous. 
I don't know. I also I was telling you guys a story recently about um, Chrysler in the U.S. One of the um, I think we have 2.5 auto companies in the United States or something yeah. like that. GM, Not government three. motors. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so Chrysler, which I don't even know what you would call that. I think you would just call it a um, crisis. And uh, Chrysler got a little desperate and has is, is, um, changed their advertising budget. And they asked the community of people to actually build a video and then submit it to the website and vote on which would be the best video. And they gave you some stock footage. And I think something like, oh, I forget, we were talking with the numbers, like 50 or 60 or even 70,000 people submitted videos on a you know, YouTube-style site for people to vote on. And some people even hacked the system and submitted videos that had nothing to do with Chrysler. They even submitted videos that said, like, Chrysler sucks and, you know, showed people driving BMWs over a Chrysler, like a little <laughs> tiny little toy car and things <laughs> like that. But Chrysler left those up. That was what was amazing. Chrysler said, well, you know, we're going to take our lumps. Like, this is also part of the community. There's a part of the community that does not like our vehicles. And uh, luckily for Chrysler, a pro-Chrysler ad won the contest. But the contest was completely driven by the community. Kind of like uh, Stephen Colbert's um, NASA space shuttle, whatever it was, New International yeah, Space yeah, Station story. He was trying story. to name one of the nodes of the space shuttle. And, and when he won, NASA freaked out and named a treadmill after him instead. <laughs> But it's the power of the community, right? So, yeah. But Chrysler did a very interesting thing. Instead of spending money on a regular ad, it turned around and it, it engaged with the customer base. And the statistics showed that the Chrysler sales did go up after that point. So, Let me ask you, um, Stephen, and the, the crowd too, and the listeners as well. Do you think there's any room for advertising in business software? You mean inside of in business software? business software. So I'm in my CRM. I, I am, I work at, um, I don't know, Fortis Bank. I just like that one because it's so close to my last name, a nice Dutch local bank. And I'm in the Fortis CRM and I work in the high net wealth individual department. And I want to call one of my multi-millionaire customers and tell them about the new whatever thing. And I click on the name and then all of a sudden, bing! Go to subserbianchicken.com. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think that's how it would be done. <laughs> okay, so how would you put advertising well, is, in business software? I'm just software? trying to explore. Is there, is there any... So yes, business software that is internal, like I just described, I think there is no place for advertisement. Yeah. Uh, people need to be productive. I think business software where we use it over the web as software as a service... I think there is some room for advertising. Just how Hotmail and Gmail, we accept ads. I think if we're going to take some office applications and business applications on the internet, there can be room for advertising. Do you think there's, uh, I mean, given what we know about people's habits and looking and tuning out ads that are on web pages, you know, it seems to me that the only ads that are effective are those at search engines because they're, you, you know, or Google ads, AdWords kind of things where there, there is some relevance to to what you're actually looking for. I tend to agree, and but I don't necessarily think search engine is the only way. As I um there was a company in New York and they were recently acquired by I think AOL or one of the other big big guns. And what they did is they put a cookie on your machine and if you went to weather.com, it would say, "Oh, you went to weather.com." And then if you went to espn.com, it would say, "Oh, you went to espn.com." And then if you went to websites about, you know, safaris in South Africa, it said, ooh, you know, South Africa. And then if you went to Expedia.com or another travel site, it would actually pop up a web page that said, hey, are you going to the World Cup? 
right? And, um, you know, that's an extreme example, but that's exactly what it did. It looked at all of the sites you went to and then it gave you more relevant advertisement as opposed to guessing, you know, PC world. I'm looking at Carl's computer has some AMD advertising. So I gotta, I gotta know what is the world's most, uh, you know, probably democratically liberal culture. Think about that. What do you think? Yay or nay? Yay? Nay? Wait, wait, hold on. But nay, because you just want no advertisements. You'd rather see, you would rather see irrelevant ads as opposed to relevant. You'd rather what? You'd skip the program if it had that. So, so in other words, advertising just like has no, no place. But let me let me get let me guess here. That actually, the shocker is the invasion of privacy. The idea that some that an advertiser is tracking you site to site to create composite ads like that. I think that's these it's guys creepy. It's creepy. Why it's is it creepy? creepy. Some yeah, sir. I agree with you. I don't know what you know what I'm So he's saying he's using a webmail program and uh, it looks at his emails and pops up relevant ads based on the content of your emails. And that's so you okay get a lot of you? advertisements for pornography then, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay? That's okay with you? Yeah. It's How's really that? A- that's more creepy than a few cookies looking that I went to weather.com and trying to string together which sites I went Well, to. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Gmail does it too. You're a big Gmail user, Carl. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you Maybe find not it creepy? for long. You find it creepy? No, no, because I like everybody else tune out the ads. I mean, I don't. I haven't ever. I haven't ever been on my email and seen an ad and said, "Ah, oh, yeah, I think I want to go on a cruise." You know, I. You know, the interesting thing about, about it is, I think, generally speaking, geeks are the worst case scenario for this. Does anybody click on any link that's not directly focused on the, what you actually are doing? You know, I, I, no, the, everybody unanimous. Yeah, they're all shaking their heads. I'm if the link is anything other than the dead center of the screen of something I was actually pursuing, I presume it's an ad, and just don't click on it. And I, and so my thought was, and I think I, th- I think most think geeks think this way. We think none of this works, and it'll eventually go away because it's a complete failure. And but Google's making a lot of money. Turns out it's not. Now Google's making a lot of money selling the ad. True. The real true. question is. Is Google's customers making more money than they spent on those bloody ads? I gotta, I gotta tell you, I had a lot of success with Google ads when they first came out back when Franklin's Net was still teaching classes. And, uh, we, we did an ad campaign where it was, you know, we, we, we paid, uh, there was a certain, I can't remember what it was, so to pay a certain amount of money to get the first link, the first commercial link for a given phrase. And you outbid each other for that. Basically, so if somebody else wanted to uh, buy the link VB training, you know, or ASP.NET training, they would pay for that. But it, but it was always a, a race, and you never really knew until you tested it. Right. So, but but that turned out to we we actually got quite a few uh, people coming to our classes from that. And the problem now is that these systems have been gamed, right? Where people have figured out that farm as many links as you can, and you you always hear about the lottery wins. The guy who takes a picture of his check from Google for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you know, and it's a lottery win. It's like a one in a billion thing, and, but it gets everyone thinking. Well, we got to figure out how to do this, and you get this massive linking farms and really deceiving people into clicking on links. Because that makes you money. It's very, very annoying. Quite. I agree. Annoying? Yeah. Yeah. 
This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Rad Control Suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? Then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for a line of business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their Rad Control Suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support, and as you might already have heard, the first commercial 3D chart. Check out the Telerik Silverlight suite at telerik.com slash silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. So, I mean, the point we haven't really gotten around to here is what form of marketing actually works. For geeks or for everyone else? Because clearly for both, my you? mother and your mother, <laughs> you know. Uh, they may be, you know, influenced by some of these ads. I think even the mom demographic tends to tends to tune out the banner ads as well. I, I've been thinking about that, and I I think that just the way the mom demographic turns out the thirty second ad on television, right? That has to be rethought as well on television. I just think when it comes back to engaging with the community, there was um, I forget uh, the name of the band, but they've done almost like a geocaching contest where at the rock concert they left USB keys in the toilets. Well, not in the actual toilet, but in in the bathroom. You got to remember for the American listeners, the Dutch called the bathroom the toilet, so not the actual physical toilet. And they left USB keys. Thanks, thanks for. I just, I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, it's all. I feel so enlightened. <laughs> and and a little. Actually, unclean. they call it toiletin, but that's a different story. Just literally translate to toilet. So they left USB keys in the bathrooms. Correct. The laboratories. So on those USB keys were kind of maps and they would, and you would actually go and you would work with the community. And when it was all said and done, it was like a global scavenger hunt with online forums and the winner. And if you actually figured it out, there was a free concert in Los Angeles. And granted, not everyone made it to the free concert, but tons and tons of people, fans of that band were, were working on the clues, going to the forums, contributing to the conversation conversation contributing and to me that's a very effective way to engage with your customer base and your potential customer base was there any notice that these usb keys had something on them or were they just lying around they they were kind of lying around uh, i've read the story in wired wow, so magazine it's like a puzzle then yeah you know, like exactly what it is a puzzle and you people had to kind of figure out what's going on and it was actually kind of complex it wasn't easy to do and um oh this is nine inch nails I think it might have been it was Nine, Inch, Nine Inch, Nails. Inch Nails that yeah. did this. Yeah. And it, it was hugely complex. There were faxes and voicemails and like it was with weird clues. It's Trent Reznor. Like a guy is a loon. Yeah. He's pretty crazy. <laughs> so yeah, he went all out and, and it, and it was very, um, anti disestablishmentarianistic really. The longest word in the yeah. English language. It, it I, and I just pulled that one out of the air. Sorry. I think non anti disestablishmentarianism is longer. Anti disestablished parliamentarianism is actually, <laughs> I just sped it up because I don't want to say it, actually is a, a word that came from a British party. 
a, a political party, believe it or not. Yeah. And, that's and, the longest- and, and actually, and I'm wrong anyway, because it was actually very much against the establishment. There was a whole element of this. It was like, you are all sheep, wake up. Like, that was one of the things he was doing. That. But, and, and again, didn't explain it to anyone. The George Carlin philosophy. Yeah, but you, Carlin actually railed visibly against you. This guy didn't say anything. He just buried it in all the messages. But ultimately, it led to this concert. But it was a huge following. And it got people interested in Nine Inch Nails that might not have always been interested in Nine Inch Nails. So it was an effective medium. And in addition to that, the, the, the diehard fans loved it and became even more engaged. There's a, there's been a, a little bit of legislation in the United States for bloggers now who have to disclose the fact that they were given free products if they review them. And also if they are given money to review a product, they have to disclose how much. And uh, I wonder what you guys think about that. Do you ever read blogs to 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 see uh, reviews of products? You do. I see a few heads shaking, nodding rather. And uh, would you think any differently if somebody said, "Oh, and by the way, uh, you know, Burger King gave me a free Whopper to say this," you know, so to speak? If it was Burger King, yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, but what about uh, Hewlett Packard gave me a free laptop to say how awesome it was? Would that change your opinion of the? Uh, definitely, definitely. What if well, Hewlett Packard gave you the free laptop for you to review it? What if Hewlett Packard gave you a Whopper? That's what I think. <laughs> that would be bri- that would be bribery. <laughs> but it, it, but if I mean, the, if, I've written are I've written lots of reviews for lots of magazines. And they give you the product to try it, right? And they usually don't ask you for it back because software is so cheap that they don't want it back. They don't want to pay the shipping to send it back to you. So it, you, in fact, you get a free copy of the piece of software. But I guess this is a magazine is different because it's obvious. I was an author for a magazine. I was paid to write the article. You pay to buy the magazine. And, you know, you do the best. I always felt like I did the best review I could because I didn't do the review for the intent to get the product for free. I did, right. I did the review because the magazine paid me to write reviews. Yeah. Well, but so I actually think it's it's okay for a company to give you the product if you're going to review it, but I actually think it's it's probably why I'm I'm going to trust that blogger less if all he reviews is the iPod. Yeah. Right? If he or she reviews the iPod, if they're also, you know, reviewing the Creative Labs offering and the Zoom HD and presumably Microsoft gave them the free Zoom and Creative gave them the free whatever it is, Zen or whatever it's called. Then I would say, okay, so this person's smart. Why didn't I think of that? They got free stuff, and all mm. they have to do is write a review. I actually do trust that. So yeah. if if um you know Amazon and Sony and Barnes and Noble, if you're all listening, uh, you can send me. It's Steve Forte, twenty eight <laughs> Robinson Road. Um, you can send me your readers, and I will gladly blog about it. <laughs> yeah, but you know the other side of this is, it's been my experience watching on the internet that generally the truth comes out on the internet. Even when people don't necessarily want it that way, it's the gestalt. Just talk to Dan Rather. Yeah, exactly the case I was thinking. I mean, you sure got the sense on that news story that Rather really wanted Bush to have been in trouble that way, and the do- and and when the document was pro- was ultimately proved false with the Tacoma font. Yeah, you know, it's just the the reality is that you can't you never read one review. You get out on a search engine, you can get fifteen reviews, and you quickly glaze each one, and you get a pretty good sense. You can't get that many liars to coordinate with each other. It just doesn't work out that way. What's the uh, what, what is it? Never attribute to malice what can be achieved, what can be uh, explained with incompetence. Yes, I think that's that's uh, that's really Occam's razor's rule. People are less likely to be after you than they are to just be. Stupid. Yeah. The simplest solution tends to be the right one. Occam's razor. 
Mr. Forte. Mr. Franklin. Well, we find ourselves here at uh, another in a, uh, intermission break, <laughs> I think. Let's, musical uh, interlude. Yeah, musical interlude. What uh, iPhone development? What about it? iPhone development. iPhones. How many people have them? Raise your hand and we'll just give the numbers here. Not too many of you. Two out of the whole 50,000. Are we anti-Apple here? <laughs> Are we anti-iPhone? Kind of? Can't afford them. Because the, okay. the Netherlands is such a poor country. Yeah, I know. It's, and those poor Netherlands developers, too. Yeah. yeah, those are especially poor people. So Windows Mobile people? Wow. Many more. Many more. Isn't About half of the 50,000. Nokia. See? We're, we're in Sca- Europe, man. Scandinavian. Nokia country, baby. <laughs> we? we? Who's are. we? Where are you? Oh, See? I thought you meant we, Nokia. No, we are in, in Europe, and Nokia is still the number one here. Yeah. They, they, and they're the big, still the biggest phone man. They don't make any of these fancy phones. They don't make iPhones or any of these available PDAs. They're just starting, or... they're starting to get there, but they have sell more phones than everybody else. We forget in, in North America where we're nutty for these things that do everything except make calls well, right? But yeah, I, I don't know. I could appreciate the European point of view. What I really like from a phone is a phone call. Yeah, kind of. I like that when it, when it works. Uh, uh, we know a few people that are doing iPhone development. We haven't done it. You haven't done it, right? I have not no. done it. I use the free phone that I get when I renew my contract. But uh, you, uh, Kent, your friend Kent, our friend Kent Alstad, has been doing some iPhone development and actually wrote some stuff in uh, uh, Objective-C and made an iPhone app and put it out there in the store and... Two people downloaded it. I think it was. I think he's up to six now. But is it up to six? Well, one well, was his mom. What's that? One was his mom. I think one was him. But you know, uh, but it was an interesting point that there. And it's not that he wrote a bad app, but it was a golf app. And there's about a hundred of them out of how many tens of thousands of applications. Like I think the market is saturated, and the fact that you can only get it through the iStore means you know they've got a search problem. Do you think uh, – and I, I don't know what you've seen. I haven't seen anything about Windows Mobile 7, which is supposed to be you know, more graphical and more iPhone-like. Uh, can I say that? Uh, you can totally say that. Yeah, that's It's freedom of speech here right? in the Netherlands. But it's common knowledge. The world's right? most liberal democracy, you said. Right. I, th- I think everyone's presuming what Win 7 will be and nobody really knows. Yeah, I haven't seen it. And nobody's seen it and nobody knows when it's going to come out. I, I mean I'm wondering. Mobile, mobile 7. Yeah, mobile I thought the 7. Zoom HD is supposed to be a preview. Of what the uh, Windows Mobile 7 will be like. And, and I think Zune HD is lovely. be nice if they release it somewhere other than just the United States. That would be true. Yeah. You know, it's, it, that's the frustrating thing. And I, I'm sure folks in Europe run into this all the time. I'm in Canada. I mean, I'm next door and I can't get it. Right? And you're it's, the 51st state and you still think. can't get it. Is digital rights management dead? I think it is. And I, I think it is because it's, it's just a market inefficiency. Is, you know, Steve Jobs went to the record labels and said, we'll use DRM and to kind of get them on board with digital media because they were afraid because everyone was using Napster at the mm, time. Right. And it's created, it's harmed the people who are legitimate purchasers of the software. Right. I mean, I'm sorry, of the music. So what happens is I believe it's pretty much dead at this point. There was, uh, and there's, nobody knows anything about DRM in Windows 7, for example, like in the operating system itself. There was some rumors and speculation that Vista had some DRM stuff going on, but I presume that was just rumor because, uh, you know, there was basically the reason people leapt to this conclusion is because in Vista, if you were to say drag 
your music library, which is often the largest chunk of data that anyone owns in their personal network, you know, their, their, their video and music library, drag that across the network from your hard drive to your new NAS device with Windows Vista, it would say, calculating the time. Oh, this is going to take approximately four months. But it was the same weeks, thing if you were copying GPC files or any lo- log files right. from so IIS. It's just Vista had a buffering there was a problem. Kernel with, level bug. There was a buffering problem when you did fires, and that's why I used uh, GigaCopy. Right, and that worked fine. Right, and that was fixed with SP2. So no, to squash any rumors, there was no DRM. I mean, we could speculate no, if we want. Well, yeah. I I'm I'm pretty much convinced of it though. My copy of Windows always says their copies of Windows is not genuine, so I don't know. Right. I might be talking to the wrong guy. Windows seven? Windows seven. Beautiful like, operating system. Who likes Windows seven? Clap if you like Windows seven. <laughs> All right, to one me, guy Windows seven is popular but just because it's not Vista. One guy's got a dour look on his face in the corner. He's looking at us like a serial killer. Why don't you like Windows seven or you just don't have it? No, not impressed. Not impressed. Now, what were you not impressed with? Was it the fast load time that unimpressed the you? Slow, the small memory footprint, perhaps? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a valid point. There, People are just waiting and seeing because there was a lot of hype around Vista as well. Well, we're, we're recording this like two days before launch. And considering, you know, we forget that back in 2001, XP was a bit of a dog too, right? It wasn't until Service Pack 2 that XP became the operating system everybody loved. I'm not and so that sure. was 2005. I'm actually not so sure about that. When XP came out, because the launch was in New York. It was after September 11th and Bill Gates came to New York. And a lot of people in the press like Mary Jo Foley and all those people said, quote, they got it right this time. There was a lot of love around XP, the, actually. Yeah, you know, I'm, of course, that, I put on my IT hat when I talk about that. We talked about XP as Windows 2. 2000 with the Fisher Price interface, <laughs> uh, but it it also didn't have out of the box didn't have any support. We forget no support for USB, no support for wireless. Well, in 2000 didn't have USB either, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But but the USB biggest USB the US the biggest USB stick in 2001 was about two megabytes. So yeah. I mean. So it'd be this the thing is like the, the XP that people love has a set of features in it that came much later from the day that it shipped. And I think the cynicism around Win 7 not just doesn't just come from Vista, but it comes from Microsoft's track record on first ship of OSs has been lousy for a long time. But you can really think of, of Windows seven as Vista without the suck, I think. Yeah. Well you, you, so it's like well, Vista, Vista Service, Service Pack, Pack 3. Yeah. yeah. That's what it really is. Right. Yeah, question. Windows 7 is Vista with Botox. I like that. That's right. I like that. Because it keeps smiling. <laughs> well, and it's it's also had a little... Uh, a little they, bit of a facelift. What do they call the stuff where they stick a vacuum cleaner in your Berlusconi stuff? Liposuction. Liposuction, yeah. A little nip tuck going on. They had a little on. nip and tuck, yeah. A little Sometimes less is more. <laughs> I'm also spoiled because I've been running... You know, if you have MSDN, you can download the release to manufacturing version of... Windows 7, and so about a month ago I did that, and I have the 64-bit version running on a laptop with 4 gigs of RAM and an SSD, a 256-gig Corsair SSD drive. Anybody using solid-state drives here? Two, two people, three, I am as well. four, five, you are. There's a, what? I'll never go back. Intel? Yeah, the Intel drive is the X25. 
That's the that's sort of the reference drive. Yeah, it, it 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 makes differences in certain areas, but you realize once you have an SSD and it basically taken the drive off the table, there's other things going on that makes boot times take a long time. You know what we haven't done? We haven't taken these new machines we're building with the SSDs and so forth and loaded like Win98 on them Ooh. just to see. Now, I'm sure a whole bunch of drivers and stuff are going to break and it's not going to run in optimal mode anyway. But I remember that great conversation we had um, with the architect for uh, for uh, Visual Studio where he'd actually done this, where he built a Win98 machine running Studio 6, right, pre.net, and built an application with it. And they did the same thing with Studio 2008 and and .NET 3.51 SP1 and he, identical apps running side by side and they ran at the same speed and he, and he, and from his perspective that was a huge failure the sense that you here we are 10 years later with all this stuff and we're still really no faster we've just gotten bigger well more features same speed and and yet when you want to do the basic crud app it doesn't really matter what the more features are you've just done an awful lot of work and not gotten a lot of results from it like really we're living in a very bloated world compared to what we were using a few years ago the first time i right after i put windows 7 and this drive on here i took it out for a spin i have a i'm an audio guy and i i was playing in a band at the time and i took a a 16 channel uh, mackie onyx board that has firewire output and connected it to this. So with one little cable, I got 16 channels of uh, digital audio coming in to the thing that I could use uh, Audition, Adobe Audition, to record in multi-track. And, and since it's a 256-gig drive, I could record, you know, 20, 40 hours. I can't remember what the math was, but just a ridiculous number of hours. That was over 100 hours of, of audio, of 16 channels at the same time. So I took it to a party where I was playing in a band. I mic'd up every single instrument, plugged everything in to this board, and just let it roll all night long. And, uh, I was really amazed at the, well, first of all, the quality of the, of the mixing was great, but at the, there was no data hiccups. There was, it was just beautiful. And it, the, it, the machine wasn't even breaking a sweat. CPU wise, wasn't even breaking a sweat. So a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of that is IO intensive. And of course, that just comes right off the table. But my concern with these things, and we were talking uh, in the speakers lounge about this, is that there is a life, there is a lifetime to these, uh, the number of times you can read and write. Well, write most re- really change a bit in, uh, in, in these SSDs. Maybe 10,000 times that you can change a bit, state from zero to one. And the, when they crash, it's not a read error like we're used to. It's a write error. You can read all you want to, but you just can't write anymore. So that's the thing to watch out for. But I assume if you're like me, things get old and you sort of have that sense, uh, it's been a while since I've replaced my hard drive. I think I ought to do that before I get any surprises. Yeah, I don't know that you get the same feel from an SSD. It's going to be interesting to see how they actually fail in the field. Uh, as an enterprise guy, you'll notice that SSDs have not penetrated the server market at all. And I think it's because we don't have the not proven. We, I, you know, you can buy one-year warranty hard drives for your laptops and for your desktops, but we buy five-year warranty drives and we pay a big premium for them. And right now, there isn't an SD, SSD manufacturer out there offering a five-year warranty on an SSD. Because they don't know. They haven't even, even been around that long. Yeah, they just 
they're not going to take the chance. The expectations we have are on the enterprise side are really high. They're not really field tested on a highly transactional system or something like Especially that. Especially when you, if you've ever watched a hard drive living in a RAID array on a production server, that hard drive is reading and writing every moment of every day, always. And the only time that happens on a desktop machine is when you run Vista. <laughs> to copy your files in, in safe mode. What? You ever, we've all had this, but you turn Vista on. Like the worst thing you possibly do with a Vista machine is shut it off. Because when you turn it back on, it's got about an hour and a half to think about whether it's going to do anything for you. Sparks are flying yeah. out of the hard drive. And what I love about this is uh, the default behavior. I can set the default behavior for shutting my laptop to hibernate. And hibernating, of course, takes the entire – is different from standby. Standby just sort of does a little bit of magic and uses the battery to keep everything going in RAM. Hibernate takes an image of what's in RAM, what's in the state of the machine, writes it to the hard drive. So it really doesn't take – and look, it's hibernating now. It will probably go off in 30 seconds, and it's done hibernating. And, of course, I pull it back up. Boop. It's right there. Yeah, what you don't want to do is open it back up while it's still hibernating. Yeah, I haven't done that. Actually, see, it's done now. I haven't. I want to give that a try, Carl. One day, should I? Maybe. Should I right now? I would suggest doing that when you're at home and don't need this computer to work again. Oh, that's true. I would suggest doing it after you've taken a full system backup. Have Have any of you tried that with Windows Seven? I have not. Yeah, no, I haven't. All I All I know is that we've had plenty of experience that most of these uh, sleep and hibernate mechanisms for laptops don't work well. Well, this this is the first. Uh, Windows laptop I've ever had that actually does that correctly. I don't know if it's the SSD or if it's Windows 7, but when I close the thing, it actually goes to sleep and hibernates. Well, this is the strength. You know, if you talk about anything good about a Mac, it's that because there's one hardware vendor and one operating system vendor and one source of drivers, a lot of the stupidity that we have to battle in the PC world just goes away. Yeah. You know, no Mac guy hesitates to just close his laptop and walk off. He knows it's going to shut down. How many times have you owned a laptop that you close it, stick it in the bag, and when you open it up again an hour or so on the plane, it's still doing something. It's still shutting down. Yeah. And it's, or, a, bit, and it's a bit warm now because it's, it's been stuffed in a bag for an hour while it's melted it was doing the, it. And it's melted the chocolate in your bag. Yeah. Uh, or what about when you're like checking out of a hotel and you're running a few minutes late and you're trying to turn off your machine and it goes, installing updates, four of 14. Do not turn off your computer. Uh, That's my personal favorite. Yeah. I love that. That makes me like, so I'm happy. I'm trying to check out of the hotel. I love this one. You try to shut down a, uh, a hard drive that is clearly not in use, a portable hard drive, and says, oh, no, you can't do that. It's in use. Now I'm looking through all the processes and trying to see what could possibly be using the hard drive. Huh, doesn't matter. So that's when you go like that, you know, pull, pull the USB cord out. And uh, if you don't have your write cache policy set correctly, that could really mess you up. Uh, I learned that the hard way. So did Ask I. Ask me how. <laughs> That'll destroy a VPC in one easy step, right? Oh, yeah. Something big like that. And it's one thing to ruin a little MP3 file or something. It's another thing entirely to have a VPC that hasn't finished writing to your USB key. Is there a way to um, – you would know this. Is there a way to write – can you right-click on that drive while it's in the Explorer and say flush all data even after the application is gone? I mean, is it still – there's a there's an icon normally is in the sys tray that is has to do with USB devices and you can actually go in there and say I want to disconnect this and that will generally force those things yeah, out. Safely remove hardware. Yeah. yeah, that's the one I'm talking about where you go in, where I go in. I had write caching on on the portable hard drive. I go in, I say safely remove this device. It said, oh no, it's in use. 
So it hadn't flushed all the data. Now, the application I was using to access it, the only application I was using to access it, is completely gone, not even working anymore. But the system is still – isn't there any way to force that to, to flood? Well, anyway, I ended up just going into the properties of the hard drive and turning it to safe removal mode, quick remo- optimized for quick removal rather than write caching. And you don't have this problem with a Mac. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> I don't believe you. Sorry? What is it called? Unlocker? An unlocker utility? Is it a free download or is it there? Free download, yeah. So it's just kind of it's kind of sad that I have to go get a free tool to do something the operating system should do for me, but there you go. Maybe Windows 8 will do that. Oh, you're not supposed to talk about Windows 8. I, I saw I, I saw Windows know. 8. I've actually had a sneak preview of Windows 8. Microsoft briefed me. I'm violating my non-disclosure agreement. And I'll tell you one new feature is Notepad has the ribbon. <laughs> oh, boy. I, I know that Microsoft's now going to escort me out of the building and take the me to... There's black helicopters. There's the black helicopters coming up. Scaling the walls. And I will be in a Dutch prison tonight. But... The we ribbon. Got, we got about ten minutes left, guys. Any questions? I mean, we're not really talking about anything you don't already know, maybe. But uh, what do you guys think about do we think about Monotouch? I think I just got an email back from Miguel Diacaza, and we'll be doing a bunch of shows on it because it's wicked cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is it? A mon- <laughs> That's a good question. It's when you what? touch somebody and get mononucleosis, the uh. disease. Yeah. What do you guys think about frimflasm from flame flyer? Can we talk about frickendels too? So, yeah. Cow tit sausages? <laughs> yeah. Can we answer the question? Yeah, we'll answer the question. Monotouch is a, you know what Mono, the Mono project is a open source .NET CLR, essentially a .NET implementation for Windows, for the Mac, for Linux, and uh, anything else. So they're working on an iPhone um, library where you can use Mono and uh, develop in C-sharp or VBNet uh, programs for the iPhone. Yeah, there was a precursor to this that we talked about on the show on an iPhone show called Unity. That it was a, a fairly narrow subset, but it did allow you to oper- to, to build .NET code that would then compile into this Objective C stuff that that the uh, the iPhone ultimately uh, runs on. But it was really aimed at building a particular class of games, and it didn't really do anything else. So it didn't have very broad appeal. But uh, apparently Miguel Diacasa was involved in that as well, and now he's made a more generic set of libraries that are part of Mono to specifically to build iPhone apps. And that is a Novell product, right? Mono mono in general and Monotouch. Um, they bought Mono. They're all open source, so it's, it's for, they're freely released. They're not particularly anybody's product. I don't know. Yeah. Exactly what the licensing terms around Mono Touch are, but that we could do a show on that. Uh, I think we will, I think we shall, Richard. Carey. On open source licensing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. On Mono <laughs> Touch. Yeah. Well, uh, we come down to the end of the show. So thank you, Arnim. Thank you, the Netherlands. Holland. We love Holland. Holland rocks. Yeah, that's right. Wake the neighbors, and we'll see you next time on Thunder Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. 
online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a dog